0: We perceive and experience life with our brain and our personality choices and preferences
1: are generated in the brain. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Grey Matter. I'm Rebecca Archer. Stroke is one of Australia's biggest killers. More than 445,000 Australians live with its impacts, which can include paralysis and motor function deficits, problems with language and speech, vision loss, memory and cognitive impairments, fatigue, social isolation, dependency, job loss and depression. Strokes are common, they're not always preventable and can happen to anyone at any age. Dr. Mathilde Bulby is dedicated to making discoveries about stroke and cerebrovascular dysfunction at the Queensland Brain Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Mathilde, and thank you very much for your time today. Thanks. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Now, to get us started, how exactly would you describe what a stroke is? Yeah, so stroke
0: is when something occludes the blood supply to the brain. And uh, what we try to do, what we aim to do, is to understand the uh, restorative processes that naturally occur in the brain after the occurrence of a stroke. In our studies, we use different uh, kinds of direct stimulation and different types of imaging techniques so that we can record brain activity. And this allows us to track how neuronal activity is affected by the metabolic restrictions of stroke and how it adapts to uh, this new state in order to find a new metabolic balance and stop the spread of permanent damage. There are some characteristics of this brain activity. Uh, that are part of the brain's own intrinsic strategy for recovery after a stroke.
1: And we're trying to either hijack
0: or amplify these for therapeutic purposes.
1: Now, with your team, you're using advanced technology to show how impacting brain oscillations could offer neuroprotection following a stroke. What exactly are brain oscillations? Can you step us through that? So brain oscillations are periodic patterns
0: of electrical activity that are generated by the interaction of neurons. They are different rhythms of neuronal activity. And they are divided into several frequency bands called delta, theta, alpha, beta, and gamma. Each band is more, is more or less active depending on the brain function. The lowest frequency band is typically of sleep, while the higher frequency band are involved in different cognitive processes like memory or information processing or so on. These oscillations occur when there is synchronized activity in the brain. But in many neurological disorders, uh, like Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, autism, and even stroke, uh, neurons are not able to um, synchronize properly. So these oscillations are weakened or disrupted. So brain oscillations are a good indicator of recovery outcome and the progression of a specific disease but uh, some of these oscillations are also indicative of intrinsic brain processes to restore itself or prevent further damage and this is why we are looking for and in using specific patterns of activity that play a role in brain recovery
1: and how do you use technology to impact them exactly
0: So we, in my laboratory, we use different techniques to uh, stimulate specific types of neurons at different frequencies to determine which types of activity are beneficial and which exacerbate the the condition. We then select parameters for non-invasive stimulation to basically generate Uh, these specific activity patterns and this helps to restore the balance between excitation and inhibition in the brain which is altered after the occurrence
1: of a stroke. Can you talk me through the process of neuromodulation? Exactly how does that work? Well neuromodulation refers to a
0: range of techniques uh, usually electrical or pharmaceutical interventions that either stimulate or inhibit neuronal activity. More sophisticated neuromodulation techniques have been recently developed, and an example is uh, optogenetics, which requires the induction of genetic material that encodes for a light sensitive protein And that allows us to very precisely modulate neuronal activity using light pulses.
1: Can you give us a little bit of an insight into how you conduct your research? So is it, for example, using people who have had a stroke or animals? We use animal models of the disease. And this is, for us,
0: is a huge advantage because it gives us access to mechanistic insights that we wouldn't gain by looking at, at people's, it allows us to do investigations that are a tiny bit more invasive, but essential to understand what is behind the changes that we see after the occurrence of a stroke or after we stimulate the brain in a certain way.
1: And are there other technologies that are being used in stroke research, or is this an area that really needs more attention, in your opinion? There have been uh, recent developments in, uh,
0: for example, wearable technologies for stroke rehabilitation, and those were aiming to improve both diagnosis and uh, treatment of motor impairments, Uh, of the arms and hands after stroke. There have been robotic devices uh, that have been developed to improve the recovery of dexterity and grip strength. Virtual reality environments have shown also uh, very promising results in terms of improving visual and spatial abilities and also attention and memory as well as also decreasing levels of anxiety. However, a lot of these mm, treatments are targeted to the chronic phase after stroke. So once parts of the brain have been permanently damaged. So these also require some degree of participation from the patient. And uh, that may be difficult to obtain in severe cases. So obviously, uh, this only applies to those who survived their stroke. So I do think that there needs to be more attention paid to the acute phase after stroke. and And we need to develop technologies that reduce the severity of the stroke, prevent further damage, and improve survival after stroke.
1: And how much research is being done linking stroke and mental health How might your research help us to understand the link or even reduce the risk of mental health challenges after a stroke? Well, stroke is actually uh, one of the main causes of disability in
0: most developed countries. Depending on the brain, area where the stroke occurs, uh, it can have long-term effects on motor, sensory, or cognitive functions. Now, depending on the severity, these impairments can be quite disabilitating and may reduce the quality of life, which can increase their anxiety and sense of social isolation. It can affect the ability of stroke survivors to work, and it can result also in the personality changes, which can affect relationship and decrease the overall participation in social activities. And the effects of stroke are not only felt by the survivors, who are obviously our primary uh, concern, but they are also felt by their families, uh, especially their partners or caregivers, their children, Uh, so it's really important for survivors to receive all the support that they can from their loved ones to prevent further deterioration of their condition. It is estimated that one-third of stroke survivors will experience a reduction in uh, behavioral function and quality of life, which increases the risk of post-stroke depression having a stroke can be a life-altering event. It can change how you feel about yourself and make you worry about the future. And as I mentioned before, stroke can also cause uh, personality, mood and emotional changes, which are linked to depression and uh, anxiety.
1: Mathilde, I'm wondering if there's anything you're particularly excited about in your field of study that you're looking forward to working on and seeing how it, pans out over the next, you know, short to medium term. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Something that I find
0: uh, extremely exciting right now is the ability to combine the kind of investigation that we do with the the use of technology, specifically uh, machine learning algorithms to help us describe the kind of brain activity that can promote recovery after stroke, And what we are trying to do in the lab is to develop algorithms that uh, can measure brain activity and simultaneously adjust parameters of stimulation for each individual so that we can fully optimize our treatment.
1: I'm wondering what made you pursue a career in science and what brought you here to Australia and QBI? I've always been interested in how the brain works. It makes us
0: who we are. We perceive and experience life with our brain and our personality choices and preferences are generated in the brain. So uh, this is why I started my journey in, uh, in science, which has taken me to many places. I'm Italian, but uh, I worked in Ireland, uh, Germany, Canada, and finally here in, uh, in Australia. And when I, mm, when I visited the, the Institute, I was very impressed by the welcoming and uh, collaborative environment I found. Beyond that, the Institute has excellent research facilities in areas that are very complementary to uh, my own research. But what really drove me to choose QBI uh, is the ambitious stroke and brain injury program that the Institute is establishing, bringing across for basic and uh, translational science.
1: You have worked across many research institutes and labs in different countries. How have your experiences shaped the way that you view things like equality, diversity and inclusion in science in particular? Yeah, I have
0: been in different institutes um, around the world and academia looks quite homogeneous everywhere I, I, I went. Which makes it clear that there is a big barrier of of, of entry for marginalized communities across each country. I think that uh, this is something that needs to be addressed well before students uh, get to university. And some of the some of the initiatives uh, that we conduct, like here at the institute, like the Brain Bee program, tries to make students interested in science during their, their, their school years, but the problem of access to, to science is a structural problem. And there is only so much we can do as an institute. I think that if we are, if we are serious about giving an opportunity to, to students of all backgrounds, we are going to need a serious effort from policymakers.
1: And so what does that look like? I mean, as the chair of QBI's Diversity and Inclusion Committee, what do you believe needs to be done to make neuroscience a more inclusive field? What are the steps that can be taken in a practical sense? I mean, neuroscience, but science in general,
0: I think needs to be more accessible uh, to the general public. And we need to bring examples of accessibility to students when they are early, when they are starting. They need to see that a career in science is possible, is something concrete that they can achieve. I think this is the, the first uh, essential step that
1: we need to take. How much change have you noticed in inclusivity and diversity over the course of your own career? Have things progressed at all? Yeah, definitely. When I, when I started my PhD,
0: certain thematics are not even brought up. Right now, there is much more attention to these topics, and this is definitely something more, uh, something positive, uh, showing a change in the culture around, in academia. But there is still a lot that needs to be done. We are just at the beginning. I find extremely encouraging the fact that right now we can openly talk about gender gap in salaries, for example, it's, it's an issue that is known, people are aware of. And this is the first step, making people aware of there is a problem. And then from there, we can definitely build uh, on this. But awareness is the first thing. And I definitely saw a change from when I started my PhD like seven, seven years ago.
1: Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. It's been wonderful to learn all about your area of study. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more or support the work we do here at the Queensland Brain Institute, head to qbi.uq.edu.au. I'm Rebecca Archer, and that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.